<laughs> Good evening and welcome to episode 15 of the Borussia Dortmund London Fan Club podcast. And I'm Ben, your host and president of the London Fan Club. And um, yeah, we've got a special show on tonight where we're basically talking about um, a sort of comparison, really, between German uh, football and the fan experience in Germany, the fan experience here in England in the Premier League. And um, I've got with me some special guests. I've got a, um, a journalist from Germany, a football journalist, um, who has been on the show previously, and also um, a member of the fan club and uh, a new friend of the fan club who is a massive Chelsea fan um, and so I'm going to go ahead and introduce these guys tonight and we'll be talking uh, for about 45 minutes about the differences between English and German football uh, in terms of fan experience so um, let's get going with the show but yeah episode 15 time flies when you're having fun doesn't it Peter Queeley? Yes it does indeed well, then, yeah thanks for inviting me along um, yeah so I, I'm a um, really I'm a, I'm a big Chelsea fan um, and I've been going to watch Chelsea for over 30 years. I've seen us in you know the lower divisions. My dad used to take me, and then when I stood on the terrace, I just fell in love with football. Um, my son, um, he he would see Borussia Dortmund on on YouTube videos and hear about the yellow wall, and he wanted me to take him to a game. And I became a member of the the Dortmund London club so that I could um, access tickets. So I, I, I took him over to a game last year and I, I feel connection with Dortmund and my son absolutely loved the day there. Um, German football, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a really good experience. I've seen Chelsea play at Stuttgart and Bremen, Frankfurt and both Berlin clubs. I've been to see 1860 Munich play in, in, in the lower leagues as well. So, um, I just thought it'd be good for people to talk about the comparisons between what's good and what's not so good about the two different, you know, the Bundesliga and the Premier League and where we we agree. That's absolutely great. And we're talking about Woody here, your son. And I think he just turned, is it nine or ten? Just turned nine, yeah. So he, he turns up to football nine, training. Zero nine. Yeah, Borussia, he t- Borussia boy. He turns up. He turns up to that football training wearing the Dortmund kit, and everyone's like, "Who's that? What's he wearing?" And he loves it, you know. Yeah. So yeah, no, he's, he's What's a big... his favorite player at BFB? So I mean, now it's now it's um, it's Haaland. I mean, I think everybody. I think he's going to be a uh, a world star, isn't he? I mean, um, as yeah. you know, as long as he can stay at, at, at Dortmund, the better for the club. That's absolutely right, Peter. So welcome to the show and thank you. And it's great to have you on as a member and thank also um, and also as a big Chelsea fan. And um, me being a London Londoner, um, I'm always keen to talk about London clubs as well. Um, and uh, we've got another Chelsea fan on the show um, and uh, his favourite player, in, in my opinion, as far as I can see from, from the, uh, the picture I'm seeing, seems to be Gianfranco Zola, who's always been a very firm favourite of my great auntie Lorna. <laughs> who had a season ticket for many, many years. So welcome, David Rodriguez. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for inviting me on, Ben. Um, it's a very similar t- story to Peter in that, uh, again, I've been going to Chelsea matches for about 30 years or so. Started in 1990, got taken by my father, who used to go to matches in the 60s. Uh, my brother started going with him in the 70s, and it's kind of continued on from there. So at some point, I'm hopeful of taking my 19-month-old son uh, probably in the next five or six years, obviously, uh, given where we are, if attendance has ever returned to matches. Uh, but thank you very much for having me on. Gianfranco Zola is one of my favourites. I wouldn't say he's alone. He's probably on a podium with a few others. Um, but yeah, in, ter- in terms of German football, like Peter, I've been to watch 
mainly Chelsea in Germany against um, some of the main Bundesliga clubs, Bayern Munich a couple of times, Stuttgart, um, Schalke, a few others. Oh, um, never uh, mentioned that word beginning with S. Uh, sorry, I, I didn't mean to swear on the show, you can so I apologize. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. You share the common colour of blue with uh, with our neighbours in um, in Gelsenkirchen, but we generally just refer to them like Gelsenkirchen. But anyway, um, thank you so much for coming on and uh, be really interested to hear about your experiences and I think what a lot of people especially in Germany will not know is that um, Chelsea spent a few years also in uh, in the second division in the what is now the championship and I think uh, if I'm not did they ever drop to the third tier I can't remember no, the never second have. tier for a while weren't they came very yeah. close to but never have yeah. yeah how long were they in the second tier for in the champion what is now the championship was previously the second division so it's a period of about um, 15 years where the club was yo-yoing between Division 1 and Division 2, um, mainly from the early 70s, so kind of mid-70s, um, the club managed to bankrupt itself pretty much, ironically trying to expand the stadium um, at a time when there was an economic crisis and just got their timing spectacularly wrong. Had yeah. to sell a very talented team of players who just won the FA Cup, the FA, sorry, the European Cup Winners' Cup. Yeah. against Real Madrid and that team disintegrated and languished in the lower uh, division for a few years yeah. and then spent a couple of years kind of going up and down with the younger side yeah. um, but got promoted again in 1989-90 yeah. I think it was the final time and have been permanent members of the top division since. Incredible, really, isn't it? I mean, um, Philipp Buchner is a football journalist from Germany, uh, works for Radio Berlin Brandenburg, and we've had him on the show previously when we interviewed the mighty Delron Buckley, who played for clubs like FC Basel, Arminia Bielefeld and Borussia Dortmund. And uh, yeah, it's always ultra special to have German journalists on the show, especially sports journalists who have such accurate uh, and up-to-date information and knowledge, and 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 Philip, I guess like like uh, like a lot of people, um, I guess you weren't totally aware that Chelsea spent so long in the in the second division, right? <laughs> not at all. Of course, I was aware that Chelsea was not always out for hunting trophies. I think even at the beginning of the the Gianfranco Zola era, I think they they were not fit to earn trophies, were they? <laughs> Uh, we won the FA Cup the first year Gianfranco has joined. We've and been in the cup the final in '94. So, yeah, so I'm mistaken there at least. Yeah. but I, but I know Chelsea uh, only got big back again when they had the the necessary means. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would debate that. It's not the the purpose of the show. But Chelsea were on the up from when they um, they appointed Glenn Hoddle in 1994, and we had Matthew Harding who backed the club as well, and. We, I mean, we won the Cup Winners' Cup, we won the League Cup, the FA Cup um, twice, which is really big in England. And we were constantly, you know, we were second, third, fourth. We were, and the year that Roman Abramovich took over, I think we came third the year before. I think we had to beat Liverpool in the last game of the season. It was third or fourth. David might correct me there. So we were, we were on the up probably from '94, and Roman Abramovich took over sort of 2002. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Matthew Harding, of course, um, was big in insurance, and then he died in a helicopter crash on his way to a match. Right? right? Yeah, and away. So I think I think I have to get back and do my Chelsea research again. Some links. Yeah. Perhaps we could talk about ticket prices to start with. Then, I mean, what? uh, So, what's your experience, Peter? 
Well, I mean, at Chelsea, so myself and um, and and David sit in the same stand, not next to each other, but it's um, it's around seven hundred and fifty pounds for a season ticket, and that gets you your nineteen league games. Okay, so that works out just under forty pound a ticket, which is expensive, but I don't think it's astronomical. I don't think it's it's over the top. I think it's a it's a fair price to go and watch Chelsea play forty pound for an adult. Um, in 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 the league cup it can be as little as 10 pounds and then fa cup and then champions league they can push the price up to around 60 pounds which i think is extortionate for a knockout so when chelsea got hammered by that german team last time um we won't mention their names that i think for my normal seat they wanted 60 or 65 pounds which i wouldn't pay so often the press will talk about how in germany the season tickets are lower and you've got terracing and um, I mean, my my experience when I've travelled away with Chelsea and when I went to Dortmund is that I was paying probably still thirty or forty pounds for a ticket, and certainly for you know Champions League final, which may have been out of the control of, of Bayern Munich, they were still like sixty, seventy pound for a ticket. But my gen- the general consensus is that it's a lot cheaper in Germany, and therefore perhaps you can attract younger fans that perhaps add to the atmosphere. But maybe you guys can. You know, can add to that. Yeah, Philip, how is that for you? The idea of paying um, eight hundred euros for a season ticket. Um, how would you feel about that at SC Freiburg, your your local home team? <laughs> outrageous, outrageous. Um, I'm, Peter, I'm really surprised. You always, uh, you obviously gotten used to it uh, by saying like it's worth it. In Germany, you would like with most clubs. I would even say almost all clubs in the Bundesliga. You would be able to get a season ticket for um, as low as 200 euros, which is about 170, 180 pounds, the equivalent. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean you can actually get that ticket because there's only, um, you know, a limited stock of those tickets. That's the cheapest uh, seats or, or, or places in the stands. Normally, the fans would pay that amount of money to be in their uh, in their terrace, and always there is um, a price for for kids and disabled people that is maybe even lower. Of course, if you want to pay more, if you want to go to a um, VIP box or whatever, it's o- almost open end. You could almost uh, like at least spend the amount of money you pay with Chelsea, but if you want to go to a match and there's tickets available, you would be able to go there at about 16, 17 pounds. Or if you are coming late, maybe at least for 30 pounds, I would say you could attend any match if there's a ticket available. I think David may, may agree with me that perhaps Chelsea were really expensive to start with. And we've actually had quite a few um, freezes on, on our, our, our seen tickets going up in price. A lot of the other London clubs have now overtaken us. So Tottenham, West Ham and Arsenal all charge more. Um, so perhaps, David, if we got used to the price and we now actually think it's good value because th- we used to pay a lot element, more. Yeah. I think there's an element of being worn down by the experience to a certain extent. Um, you kind of get worn down by just the situation not changing over time. So there's this general kind of... Um, you know, you, you get used to it. So eventually it becomes acceptable because 
as you say, um, well, it's cheaper than ever, everywhere else in London, so that must make it good value. But um, just historically, a few interesting data points. Um, Chelsea were always regarded as one of the most expensive clubs, even when we were in Division 2. So we touched on this earlier. Um, so at the start of Ken Bates, who is the guy who sold the club to Roman Abramovich, at the start of his tenure, Chelsea were famously expensive and were the most expensive London club in the second division. And frankly, a mid-table, not very good footballing experience generally with violence in the stands. Yet, Ken Bates felt it able to command a premium price versus Arsenal, Tottenham, who were challenging for trophies at the time. Fast forward a few years, and I remember when I um, was going, when I was maybe 15, 16, it, already the stadium had been partly redeveloped, so it was a, a half-modern stadium, let's say. But I was still paying, as a 16-year-old, £5 for Category B matches, which is a majority, and £6 for the Manchester United's Liverpool's. That part of the stadium was uh, knocked down, and the next season, the cheapest price was £25. So already that was a huge jump, and, and mindset-wise, I actually stopped going for a couple of years because justifying that to my parents as a 16-year-old who or 17-year-old who didn't work they're like, I'm not paying you £25 to go and enjoy yourself every Saturday get, get a Saturday job yeah David I totally get that so I guess I mean um, there's been that kind of process of I would call it somehow gentrification of English football where basically um, a bit like the neighbourhoods where you would get certain streets which used to be a bit rough and they would get done up and then suddenly all the houses were worth a million pounds or whatever. And it's some, somehow it's kind of like been the same with the football. Like um, if you, I remember going to watch um, uh, Arsenal at Highbury sometimes, um, um, particularly I'm thinking of the last FA Cup uh, they played against there, uh, against Wimbledon and uh, it must be a long time ago. Don't even tell me when it was. I don't know, probably 1998 or something like that. But um, I remember the ticket points, at the, the ticket prices at that point were quite reasonable, something like £25 or something. Um, and then, as I said, last time I went to the Emirates Stadium, um, which was against FC Cologne in the Europa League, uh, I think the ticket was something around about, as you said, Peter, about £50 or something like that. And that was a cheap Arsenal ticket. So um, when when did this gentrification of English football really happen? When did English football suddenly become expensive, do you guys think? And, 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 and why why did that actually happen? So, so I think there's two main drivers, as far as I can tell, and, and this is just an opinion, it's not really based on a scientific uh, experiment. But the first thing is obviously the advent of the Premier League and Sky's investment into the whole television deal and the club suddenly separating themselves from the rest of the Football League historically and throughout my lifetime the first division was just the top division. It wasn't anything different from the rest of the Football League structure in England. Suddenly the Premier League was this kind of put on a pedestal as a superior um, product, which frankly it wasn't at the time, not at inception. Um, and slowly Sky invested money. They they were smart in being able to sell those rights abroad and sell this kind of more physical, exciting football. Even if the quality wasn't there, then it was you know physical, lots of things going on. Um, and then the real turning point, I think, was Euro 96, hosted in England. Um, suddenly... To your point on gentrification, I, I'd say that um, much of the working class 
group of fans who still follow their teams still follow their teams but the difference is where you had crowds of and this was across england crowds of maybe 10 to 15,000 at every other club let's take out maybe liverpool and manchester united but every other club had meddling crowds in the 80s and and sort of early 90s suddenly you got this influx of people who thought football's great it's exciting whole the whole euro 96 thing was very popular in this country uh and the very next year suddenly it was difficult to get season tickets it was difficult to get memberships i mean i remember 1994 chelsea reached the fa cup final and i went to an fa cup without being a member that's unthinkable these days without even being a season ticket holder yeah david you bought it on the day on the day on the gate you still had to buy in advance, um, but I was able to go to the semi-final without any membership, whereas that's unthinkable today. Absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely it's a, right. It's a supply and demand. And um, the thing that the clubs, that they have the, almost the power over the fans is if I don't buy a ticket at a certain price, they will sell it to somebody else, be it a tourist, be it what we call a day tripper. And I've been that when I've... Well, you know, came to Dortmund, I was a day tripper and it does help to keep the clubs going. But in, in England, it did feel that suddenly they, they knew there were kind of so many fans that could fill those seats for you. If you weren't happy with the price, well, somebody else will buy it. So that's why we're pitching it at this 50, 60 pounds. So from, from actually at Chelsea, you, you if you are uh, not a member, not seen the older, you are looking at 65 pounds to, to turn up to watch Chelsea versus Southampton. You can't do it this week, but if it was a league game you could you could pay that sort of price. And Philip, how how would you how would you react how do you think German fans would react if suddenly their season tickets were a thousand euros and the tickets to get into the matches were average forty, fifty pounds, which they basically are in England? Um, if it comes in one step you'll probably get an, a huge outrage. Uh, we are obviously talking about uh, ultras later on. The organized fans, uh, they would probably step up and uh, to, to put it in a moderate way, um, demand a discussion about that. Of course, there's always been um, steps making uh, ticket prices go up, uh, making football not necessarily available to everyone. Uh, I was just about to talk about the World Cup 2006, which saw all the stadiums refurbished in Germany, which led to higher ticket prices. Um, How much? But, by the way? I was at 2006, but um, it was a wonderful World Cup. It really was. Germany showed itself in the best possible light. I went to two games, one in Frankfurt and one in Hanover, and uh, a really great World Cup, but how much did the tickets go up by in the Bundesliga after that? Do you remember? I couldn't even tell, but I know they went up. Maybe not even uh, the next year, but of course, all the clubs had to refurbish their stadiums, even stadiums that weren't in the World Cup, but some pitch to to get in there to to host some games, um, and even they got uh, refurbished. So um, at the end of the day, it is about investment and getting back your investment. But it's also an investment for the clubs, you know, to make tickets available to a younger or um, to younger people, to people with less money. And it's always about the mixture. And I think there's not a single club, not even Bayern Munich with their stadium. Uh, the Allianz Arena was built for the World Cup 2006. They sold tickets for as low as seven euros, six uh, pounds 
there's a fame uh, there's a very famous talk with Uli Hoeneß and supporters at a um, at a club. Um, what is it? You know, when when all the supporters get together, what what is it like called? The annual general meeting or the uh, yeah, that's the one. That's the one. They had their annual meetings and there was some criticism and Uli Hoeneß fam very famously broke out saying like, we sell your tickets for as low as seven euros and we have to charge other people a lot more. He was basically just saying like, there's a German uh, expression, das Geld aus der Tasche ziehen. We, we're pickpocketing the rich the rich guys to uh, to have tickets uh, available for you at the price of seven euros. And Well, it, that's very, very harsh uh, thing to say, but it's the truth. You know, you have both ends of uh, of the spectrum. Some want their, you know, VIP package, and they're willing to pay more. But there will always be the lower end, and maybe the lower end will go up in pricing. But that's they put it very moderate. I mean, I think they put up season tickets five or ten euros a year. And that's obviously okay for fans, but not too much. Otherwise, it would uh, lead to politics with the fans. Absolutely right. And that's been the experience in Dortmund as well, that they just put the um, season True. ticket up marginally. Um, and um, the amount of VIP tickets in Dortmund is actually very small. I mean, a stadium of 80... 81,000 and something, just under 82,000. Um, if I'm not mistaken, they only have less than 5,000 seats for VIPs and, and sponsors and so on. So um, Dortmund is very much a people's club. Um, and uh, and that's kind of really what we like about it, I guess. I would love to know from, from David uh, and Peter, um, do you feel that when that gentrification happened in English football, when the tickets suddenly went up, that a lot of the working men uh, and men and women, basically the normal kind of working people who are on low incomes, even perhaps people from marginalized communities like disabled and perhaps unemployed and so on, do you feel that a lot of them were suddenly, you know, traditionally people would always have gone to football and felt very comfortable at football. Do you, do you guys feel that they were kind of suddenly pushed out and no longer able? But what actually happened to a lot of the, the those people who, who had traditionally been going who didn't have a lot of money? Oh, David, if I could just go first. I mean, if you look at the Premier League, if you were to look at Liverpool, Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham, yeah, definitely you could see that um, a lot of loyal fans that used to go don't have the same match day experience as they do now. They'd go into the the home end and they'd start singing a song and they'd look to their left and it'd be someone that doesn't know the words, doesn't know, you know, is 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 maybe just there to just to enjoy a Premier League game, take a selfie. If you were to watch Burnley or Crystal Palace or maybe other smaller teams, they may have been able to keep hold of a certain degree. Um, probably the, the numbers are smaller, um, but it's I wouldn't say it's completely gone for every single club. And for Chelsea, where there's a, there's a big game, if we were playing Spurs and it was all sold out early on and, and you can still have some amazing atmospheres at games, but week in, week out... Um, They still start calling it the product. They to fill these stadiums. You have a lot of people from you know from all over the world that perhaps um, are not as focused or as passionate as as long term fans, and have perhaps priced out some people. As so day trippers, yeah, 
yeah, day trippers, and, and and I'm guilty of it. And I've been on, um, you know, people go stab dudes to Barcelona, and they go in the bus. But if there's areas which are for, you, you need to fill these stadiums. Every, especially after this COVID, you know, we, football clubs are going to need to fill the grounds um, once it's safe. But it's people season ticket holders often sell their tickets back to the club or sell them on the black market to people. So you've got the home core end, which has been diluted. By, by 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 random people that might be there just to have a nice you know go go for tapas and then go and watch Chelsea play, um, and that dilutes the atmosphere and and for for hardcore fans can put them off. Um, yeah. So it, it's I think there's a need and it's something we, if we can talk about um, safe standing at some point. If there's a terrace, if there's an area which is really just for home passionate fans. The atmosphere yeah. can still be there, and everybody else that wants to go, I want people to come and fall in love with Chelsea or fall in love with whatever club, because everybody has to start at some point. So, but there needs to be areas needs to be separated in a certain way so that they can come yeah. and enjoy it, but it doesn't drive out the regulars. Um, That's right. So. Thank you, Peter. I really get the um, the the feeling that basically what you're saying is that. Um, um, you know, we've all done the ground hopping thing. You know, you've been to Barcelona. I was at Barcelona in November watching Dortmund in the Champions League with my nephew, Gordon, and my brother, Oscar. And um, I mean, that admittedly, that is following your your team basically going out. Mm. But, but I've also been to plenty of grounds around um, in different countries and so on. Uh, one of the most unusual football matches I ever went to was in Ethiopia in the Ethiopian League. Right. <laughs> I didn't fly especially to Ethiopia. I was doing volunteering <laughs> out there at a, with a children's orphanage. Um, David, do you feel that, um, because you have a lot of experience with the English game, many, many years, as you said, you've been going since you were a youngster, um, do you feel that um, many of that core audience have kind of just been pushed out of football and, and are no longer able to afford it, therefore? I think it's a slightly different problem, actually. So I wouldn't say those people have been pushed out because my experience is... Um, certainly watching Chelsea but I think it's true of other clubs as well certainly my f extended friend groups who support other clubs it's it's very similar there I think those people still continue it's a big part of their life and, and therefore they're willing to commit you know it doesn't matter what salary they're on these season tickets um, whilst they're expensive they've been priced at a point that they're still accessible to most individuals if they've got a job so those people will make a commitment to their club over other things other pastimes they may have i think the real travesty in england is um the disappearance of youthful support let's say so the let's say 12 to 20 year old that's virtually disappeared if you look at any pictures of english football matches at any point in history pre let's say the year 2000 there's a big chunk of mainly 15 year olds 16 year olds uh, and i know we're coming on to it later in terms of atmosphere but that's that's done two things one is absolutely killed the atmosphere because let's face it stanford bridge is full of people like peter and myself and people who are older so we're generally you know let's say in our 40s plus miserable midlife and generally angry with life <laughs> not usually exuberant but we're lacking that youthful exuberance and kind of excitement yeah. that say the 20 year olds have and you know sometimes that spills over into over excitement um but it's it's just lacking that energy i suspect the picture in germany is totally different and they still have that demographic being a big part of attendance 
So what you're saying, David, is that um, a lot of the young people cannot afford to go anymore. Um, and if they do uh, age between 12 and 20 years old, and if they do go, then it's very, very occasionally, perhaps because their parents have treated them or because they've managed to, you know, get a cheap ticket or whatever. And so that potentially has a big risk in terms of um, where the future fans are going to come from. I mean, it makes the English clubs basically be very dependent on the tourists and the visitors. And as... Um, um, Peter was saying, um, you know, the, those guys who come and date, you know, ground hopping and just take a photo and a selfie or whatever, um, they don't know the songs, they're not really integrated. And so my experience of somebody who's, uh, you know, has a rich heritage of going to German games, I've been to at least a couple of hundred Borussia Dortmund games since the first season when I was uh, a little boy, um, uh, 1982-83. Um, but um, I go to at least five or six per, per season. Um, but um, my experience is that um, I don't really experience very much atmosphere at all. Um, I mean, the only place I've really experienced a lot of atmosphere is, um, uh, was perhaps Anfield or, or Fratton Park. I've been to games at Arsenal, and I mean, they talk about boring, boring Arsenal, where, um, you know, nothing happened at all. I mean, the fans basically, you know, the thing that cracks me up about Arsenal, I just want to throw this in quickly, and this is not an anti-Arsenal show because we had um, Mark Brindle, the SLO of Arsenal, on the show um, a couple of weeks ago. Well, it was actually about six weeks ago, and he was an absolutely fantastic bloke. Um, and um, there's a great heritage of players going from Borussia Dortmund like Jens Lehmann and Tommy Rosicki and so on to Arsenal. So um, there's definitely a good relationship there, Papa Socrates and uh, Pierre-Marie Aubameyang's there and so on right now. But um, so it's not anti-Arsenal. But what really cracks me up about Arsenal is you go to the um, the Emirates and they have all these fan club banners all around the top of the ground. I don't know if you've seen them. And Philip, you're going to love this. They're, they're fan club banners. It'll say something like a bit like what we have, Borussia Dortmund Fan Club London. So it'll say Arsenal Fan Club Tokyo. And then the banner has been pre-produced on a plastic sheeting and it then it then stays up on that ground all the time in the exact same place. Um, I don't even know whether fan clubs actually pay for those banners to go up there or whether they are actually original or whether the club just produced them. Um, you know, I, I, I just can't really imagine. But I mean, the, the, the idea of taking all the spontaneity out of it to the degree that you can't even put your own fan club banner or flag up and then tearing out all the youths and, the, and, and, and you know, the 12 to 8 to 20 year olds. It doesn't really sound like German football to me. I don't know what you think, Philip. I've actually never heard of those kind of banners. Just let me ask back, does that mean there are fan banners of people who are actually not attending the games? Absolutely spot on, yeah. They're banners, which have been, in my opinion, uh, as far, I, I'll have to check in with Mark Brindle, but they've been pre-produced by, the, um, by the Arsenal Football Club. Um, and um, obviously they'll have consent, but they are all around the top of the of the Emirates Stadium. And there's about I don't know, there's about forty of them. Have you guys been to the Emirates Stadium, um, Philip? Yeah. Uh, sorry, no, Peter. Yeah. yeah, I mean, um, as as a football fan, and uh, you know, I respect Arsenal, and but Highbury was a joy to go to, especially when they're the terracing um, in the old um, clock end behind the goal. Um, and one of my favourite ever Chelsea games when we beat them in the Champions League, that's when it was seating, but it was again in the clock end. And the Emirates, it, I mean, I've got Arsenal friends that, you know, that, that seem to go to us. It's nowhere near. It's, it, uh, there was something, 
Arsenal have always felt, I don't know why, but there was something, they got the, the marble halls, there's something about Highbury where, okay, you could say to them, okay, your stadium was nicer than ours. It, it was beautiful. It was nice. Stamford Bridge, I love it, but it's not beautiful like that. The Emirates, I mean, you get these big wide seats and it's all, you know, a million burger bars and, and it's, it's, it is what you want to avoid. And I'm so pleased that Chelsea haven't moved from Stamford Bridge to build something like that. I haven't had the, the um, experience of going to Tottenham yet, the new ground. I've been to the old one many times, which I enjoyed. Yeah, the um, name. I remember yeah, a couple of Freeport name, we used to call it. But um, yeah, the, the new stadium, I, I understand they're trying to do something different to the Emirates. I'm not sure if that's been achieved. But um, yeah, Arsenal, I know, I know actually a lot of real passionate Arsenal fans that just are now looking around the Emirates. So this season they've started well, but they're looking around and thinking, was it actually worth worth the move? Was it worth the sacrifice of losing the Emirates and uh, losing Highbury? Sorry. Um, and the amazing but, thing, Philip, is I'm sorry to interrupt, but the amazing thing, Philip, is that the the ground Highbury was torn down and it is now apartment buildings. <laughs> I don't, that that kind of breaks my heart. I'll tell you a quick, very quick story. I went out to Barcelona um, as I was mentioning earlier for the Champions League game um, on November the twenty seventh last year, and um, I was there the day before. So I, I, I um, just being basically a bit of a football fan, I went down to see the other club, Espanyol, and um, and I'd, I'd heard the whole story about how they had this um, this football ground. And I went to look for their old football ground, and um, it was in one of the posh neighbourhoods in Barcelona. Anyway, I spent a whole day kind of wandering around trying to find this place, and eventually I found a, a dog walking um, sort of area, a little grass patch of dog walking uh, sort of area where people take to, to walk their dogs, and uh, and and children swings and so on, and um, and, uh, and 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 apartment builds buildings all around. And there, in the middle of where the dogs basically do their doo-doos, their their poop poop, <laughs> was a little tiny brass plaque about the size of a hand, and it said, "This used to be the Espanol Football Stadium." <laughs> right. So the Barcelona fans take their dogs there, do they? <laughs> yeah. Let's 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 move on. Um, um, talking about, um, I'd, I'd really like to get onto the the, the topic of um, of um, of uh, safe standing and um, and um, but before we get onto safe standing, because that's something quite close to your heart, Peter. Let's just talk about, I mean, the impact that um, that gentrification of English football has had on what traditionally were known as ultras or kind of you know the um, you know I mean, Philip, we have a. There's a very big kind of ultra scene in Germany of very, very dedicated, passionate fans who basically sing and chant and have great songs and and um, very much um, identify with the club and um, it's very much their life and so on. And I mean, as any English fan knows, the Borussia Dortmund ultra scene on the yellow wall, the Südtribüne, is famous worldwide, um, 26,000 behind the goal and has the most extraordinary level of dedication in terms of they just sing the whole time during the game they chant and sing and support the club the entire time whether Dortmund is winning or losing isn't that right Philip? It is right uh, although I have to tell you if you come to Germany and talk about this topic you would find 17 other clubs and fa fans of other clubs to disagree <laughs> that's what they basically all do and we've got quite a few really passionate uh, supporter scenes uh, ultra groups and 
it's not only if i may add this about the support of course the the support and level of support is what makes an ultra uh, but let me pronounce it german ultra um but of course it's also the interest of the club and the ideal of the club that's what every single ultra in germany would always uh, defend would always even even defend against club officials who try to alter that and this is also a very important part of ultras um, and about the support as i mentioned um, i would say every single supporter uh, uh, ultra group makes an excellent support for their club especially at the home ground but also uh, going away and, and yes. i have to add that like uh, for the flags we, we were talking about the the banners the banner is always a sign of attendance if you're not there you don't have your banner there if your banner is there everyone knows ah okay hammerhearts are there or um supporters crew is there you would always know yeah absolutely so it's pretty artificial really to put a plastic banner up um, wh whether the fan clubs are there or not i mean it's just very very strange um but philip um how can you kind of just um describe the ultra scene basically just so that we can get an idea because i think in england some people uh, mistake it with um the uh you know you had that famous um uh, hooligan group at, at, at Chelsea, um, uh, the Chelsea headhunters who used to go around basically fighting with people and so on. And they would, as you say, often be teenagers or people in their early 20s who, as as you guys were saying, perhaps nowadays can't afford to go anymore or perhaps they're completely marginalized. But just to get an idea um, before we go on to asking Peter and David whether those guys really still exist. I mean, one of the things I love about German football, for example, on the Yellow Wall in Dortmund, is um, the extraordinary choreographies um, where they basically create like amazing imagery. Um, you know, I remember when they played against Real Madrid, there was that extraordinary choreography of uh, a B4B fan with uh, binoculars um, uh, looking out for the Champions yeah. League Cup. Um, and I think many, many people remember that. And Dortmund, you know, regularly turn out these incredible choreographies that are just very much like you might see in South America or Italy, where I think the idea really came from. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, Philip, how do how should we understand the kind of um, the idea of the choreographies, the idea of the um, the ultra scene? Um, what how how would you say how did they define themselves? What age group are they, and how different are they? Would you say to what used to be uh, hooligans back in the day? Well, to make that clear, ultras and hooligans are two entirely different things. I have to add though. Of course, there would be ultras who are also hooligans because, um, and I'm getting back to ultras, ultras are kind of no matter what movement, no matter what, we're going to support our team until the end. We're going to support our ideals. We defend them, as I mentioned before. And some of them would also take it, we call it, uh, auf den Acker, uh, it, where hooligans a meet. Yeah, dritte Halbzeit. Yeah, um, we we say it's actually on the uh, 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 of the acker on a uh, what, what's the English word for acker, uh, Ben? Um, 
Dritte Halbzeit means um, the third uh, the third half of the game, basically. And yeah. it's an expression in Germany for basically taking it out after the match, meeting up, the, the hooligans meet up and basically kick the crap out of each other. Yeah. Um, On the countryside. Yeah. Or what, yeah. It doesn't necessarily have to be around the games. And a bit of, of rough course that... or, or, Yeah, basically just exactly. meet up somewhere and have a big, uh, big, uh, you know, big massive fight. But... Uh, And maybe there are also ultras within the hooligan scenes, but, uh, and ultras also have to defend their gear in the stadium, you know, they often also have to take care of their banners because if you actually manage to grab the banner of your opponent, that's one of the biggest... Uh, um, Turning the flags upside down. These, these... Uh, stuff like that, exactly. Yeah, Those yeah, are okay. the codes. And if you want to defend your flag, of course, you have to be able to defend it with your fists. Yeah. However, this is not necessarily the core of what ultra means. Ultra is, as I mentioned before, a thing by itself. They take pride in their choreographies, in their singing, in their um, organized support. Also, in their social um, work, they would always stand in for poor people here in Berlin. Every single year, they are collecting uh, clothes for homeless people when it's getting cold. They uh, collect money, they bring in trucks, they bring in people, they bring in uh, huge bins and collect. Uh, you can bring sleeping bags, you can bring your old jacket, you can bring a jumper and they would all uh, grab that and try to, uh, to, to bring it to homeless people. They would also uh, support their people who are banned from the stadiums. So this is actually a a very strong feeling of togetherness, a very strong feeling for standing in for your club. And this is what every single ultra in Germany would subscribe to. Other than that, they all have their different cultures. Not a single uh, ultra group, group is like the other. You might even have different ultra groups, sometimes even rivaling ultra groups, because we all know there's only one center of your stand and um, all the ultra groups want to stand in the center of the um, of the um, terrace and lead the support. And but most of the time they get along and they will have uh, the voting who does that. Um, but they can also always be very different from each other. I think most would also agree in in support of uh, anti-racism, anti-discrimination. This is also a very strong um, part of ultra culture these days. Not necessarily, but they agreed on letting politics in because we had back in the old days, you would say politics and uh, football wouldn't mix. But nowadays they say, well, everything we do is basically politics. So mm. why wouldn't we agree on what we agreed to uh, on in private and that led to um, a wider support of those positions who ban racism and uh, all sorts of discrimination so just be without before going too deeply into it so just to summarize basically what you're saying is there are groups of fans who are very coordinated and organized perhaps around the idea of fan clubs being part of a fan club Philip? yeah i would say so Yeah, uh, a certain breed of fan club, a modern breed of fan club, but basically yeah. yes. Okay, great. So that's for example. They would disagree. They would disagree now. Say yeah. no, nothing like a fan club. No, 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 no. Um, sorry, Peter. 
I, I think that's how we see it in, in, on the continent. I think we see the idea of an, an ultra where, okay, if you were talk about, it's, it's unfair to pick on any club, but a Lazio ultra, you might think it would be really scary. You might think of an ultra from a, a smaller Dutch team to be, you know, someone that can do a, a big display and, 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 and be very passionate. In England, I think we have a hardcore support and there'll be certain people that are, uh, in, the, in the old days, they call them top faces, but there'll be people that have got the ear of the club. So if Chelsea, for example, were to have a big Champions League game, they'd be able to talk to the club and say, right, we want to do this sort of banner, we want to do this before the game, and the club will work with them. Um, but I wouldn't say they're, they're, I wouldn't say they're like a club. I think it's, it's lots of individuals that may come together on a certain match day um, but it's not as organised. I mean, I think Crystal Palace have tried to get into this sort of thing. Some people like it, some people don't. Um, but David, what, what are your thoughts on... So, so sorry, sorry, Mayor, sorry for, for the interruption, no, no, but Ben, yeah. if the question was really if they are a club with membership cards, then the answer is no, of course. No. Sorry if I'm mistaken. Yeah. No, I yeah, think you're right. right. Philip, Peter, thank you so much for interjecting. That was going to be my next question, is how does that compare to England, basically? Uh, why do we not really see things like choreographies and and uh, and fan club banners so much at the matches? Um, uh, or do we, and I'm just not seeing it. David, over to you. So I think, it's a, first of all, it's a fundamental cultural difference between uh, much of Europe and the UK and really the history of how support for the sport has evolved. So if we talk briefly about, you know, we touched on hooligan groups and it's important to understand how those groups came to be. So one of the reasons is we spoke about you know, youthful attendance. Um, if you look at any kind of images of old hooligan, let's say battles, events, mass groupings of people who then ended up fighting, they're all kind of 16, 17, 18, no older than 22, 23, maybe all kind of young guys. Um, I think gentrification in the country as a whole in the UK is uh, a factor as well. So if we talk about, um, let's say, London, the London clubs, historically, Chelsea had their support in relatively local areas and kind of areas that were close by. If they were not immediately by the stadium, then they were close by. These days, that's just not true. Everyone, you know, Peter and I live in Surrey. I grew up in central London. I grew up about two miles away from Stamford Bridge, but that's not where I live now. And that's true for most Chelsea supporters, but also other London clubs. You spoke about Arsenal earlier, and I, I guess a lot of um, their support historically came from Islington and surrounding areas, Finsbury Park. I'm not sure that's true anymore. Um, and lots of their supporters live in Essex and Hertfordshire and so on. So it's a general gentrification in the country, which means people don't live close to where the ground is. And, and I think there was a tribal aspect to hooliganism. If you were, say, following Chelsea or Tottenham or whoever, you were almost representing that part of London in Newcastle. And, you know, 30, 40 years ago, uh, and I know we're coming on to this later, but fashion and, you know, just lifestyle and jobs even, you went to parts of the UK where mining was, say, the main employer. And in London, maybe people were working in finance or were working in professional jobs. It's just a complete culture shift. It was literally like going to a different country. So I think all of those factors explain the kind of hooliganism um, 
background and and obviously policing was lax as well we've got cctv it's a lot more controlled these days that that makes things harder um to peter's point about other clubs who seem to have adopted a quasi kind of ultra approach it feels to me and this is a personal view so i'm not judging it but it just feels artificial like they've chosen to identify with something they like from elsewhere so i take crystal palace that to me strikes me as something they've just seen elsewhere. They've liked it. They've borrowed it. And, you know, in fairness, um, I went to Crystal Palace for the first time probably 25 years ago, and it was just A, another club. And now they've got something about them. There's, there's something a bit more interesting um, when you go to matches against Crystal Palace because they've developed this kind of identity around their ultra group. Um, All right, yeah. Yeah, we had Jay Crame. He did the first two podcast episodes. He uh, he writes for the Eagles Beak, which is um, the, the Crystal Palace website. And it was very interesting hearing um, basically about his experience with Crystal Palace. And um, yeah, um, so in essence, um, Peter, just coming back to you, are you saying that um, essentially a lot of the teenagers are no longer able to go to the games because it's expensive? So therefore... Um, uh, that kind of typical, what I've seen in the Zoo Tribuna is that a lot of the uh, young fans on the Zoo Tribuna are basically aged exactly that between sort of 14 and, 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 and 25 and so on. And if they're no longer going to English games, I mean, perhaps, you know, um, I mean, do, is, is there, I mean, we, we don't, we play as, as, a, as a Borussia Dortmund fan club, we play regular football matches against other fan clubs of other teams like Newcastle United. We've played against, played against Lazio a couple of times and so on. But um, these guys, I don't, I don't see as many fan clubs organised in the same way. And, and as you said, David, I mean, there's ultras in Crystal Palace, but I haven't really seen many choreographies. And um, um, yeah, I, I just feel as if it's somehow a very different scene here in England. And, and I think, would it be right to say, Peter, that that used to be different, that perhaps the game in England used to be more similar to what it would have been in Germany or Europe with uh, more organised collectives of like fan clubs? I, don't, I still don't think it would be as organised as in to have when it was terracing in England. I mean, Liverpool would talk about their flags and they'd put those out. But generally, people would turn up to the game five minutes before they'd be in the pub with their friends and then turn up to the game five minutes before kickoff. Um, at the moment, you, um, young fans, because you know the likes of me and David, the likes of people older than us, we have season tickets. We have season tickets. We're not moving. We're still going. And as we get older, we get quieter, and the, and the, the youngest are not really coming through and the scene tickets are very expensive so there's been a big call before about having like a mid price because my son is my son is nine i can get him a child ticket and then once he's 16 he's classed as an adult so suddenly at 16 you could still be at school you should still be at school or college and your wages you know if you are working a tiny and then there's sort of this this jump that there needs to be this sort of area where you can perhaps have a, a 16 to 22 season ticket price that that would um that would work for everybody um chelsea both of you are chelsea supporters um firstly a really a bit of a provocative question um when was the last time you saw a choreography uh, at chelsea at stamford bridge i do in the champions league games yeah albeit it feels a bit manufactured to be honest so uh, Who organized huge... is it the big faces you mentioned the 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 capos what in germany is called capo like the lead singers yeah like... the, the, so the guy the guy who runs the fan scene you know um are they the guys with the megaphones and 
microphones at the but front. They wouldn't, have, wouldn't have that in the match, but they would have the ear of the club. They would be able to talk to the club and say, this is what we want to do. And then there's, a, there's a group that's trying to work on the atmosphere in the shed end, which is the opposite to where me and David sit, which is the original home end. Um, so they've they've done stuff for Champions League games and for like when Frank Lampard returned, I think, did we do something for John Terry when he came back? I'm not, so, Sorry, I mean, I, I must admit, the best one I've ever seen at a game was, was against Frankfurt um, in the Europa League semi-final a couple Maybe. of years ago. I watched that. I, I, um, I mean, what that I was I was gobsmacked. I, and so, as David said, in, in England, I don't think we quite get it right. I don't think it's... I think our, our, we can be intimidating and... Um, and I'm not talking about actual violence, but I think we can make it intimidating for the away fans, for for the players in 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 European games. And and but I don't think all these the banners actually works in England. But when I saw when I was at Frankfurt, I was just like I, I thought it was the best one I'd ever seen. Was that actually in Frankfurt or in London? Because I in, I, Fra- I watched, in Frankfurt. Yeah, I watched the game in Chelsea uh, and yeah. um, uh, the, the, the away game. It's really, yeah. really, Really good trip. I mean, I Frankfurt's a, a strange city, but it's you know. But yeah, Frankfurt have got amazing fans. Um, um, David, you you mentioned it can be artificial with the um, choreographies. Can you just explain what you mean by that? Because um, in Dortmund, it's everything other than co- uh, coordinated by the football club. Yes, these uh, the fan batoya uh, uh, supporter liaison do get involved <laughs> with with that, um, but they uh, are not basically telling the fans what to do. It's the um, it's groups like the Ubos and the Unity and so on, and other fan clubs in the Zutribune who basically organise these things. They've got a, a a small uh, office uh, in underneath the Zutribune uh, where basically um, people go and then they collect all the different materials. The materials are all made up um, by, I mean, we, London Fan Club, we've contributed to choreographies before when they've basically gone around fundraising um, and uh, you know, we put money in, in the collection and so on. But there are also active, um, apart from the fundraising that they do, um, collecting money on the day, there are also active appeals to fan clubs to support um, different choreographies and so on. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's basically how it works in Dortmund. But um, just tell me briefly, David, what you meant by um, artificial. Um, how does it work in when such choreographies happen at Stamford Bridge? So I think in fairness, there's um, there's fan clubs involved. As Peter mentioned, um, there's a couple of kind of groups who've organised themselves. Um, they're small and I wouldn't say they're structured in the same way as um, fan groups are on the continent, whether it be Germany or elsewhere, with, as you mentioned, their own offices, their own space to work and so on. This is just let's say people like Peter and I who get together and say, we should really do something for this match against whoever, um, and then kind of speak to a few people, maybe fund a banner of some sorts. And in fairness, as Peter said, they've done it for a few things now. Um, I call it artificial just because culturally it's not really part of the English game and never has been. So Peter alluded to um, intimidation earlier, and what I think he's getting at is, I'll give you a comparison. I think the first European game I went to, or one of actually not the first, but one of the best European games I've ever been to watching Chelsea was against Bruges in the Cup Winners' Cup. I think that was 1995. To me, that is still the best home atmosphere at Stamford Bridge in a European game ever. And I've been to like 20 seasons worth of Champions League games. Nothing's ever come close. There's been days where, you know, when we beat Barcelona, that was a, a huge result and there was a big celebration. But that atmosphere against Bruges was 
second to none in my book. And there was no display. There was nothing kind of fanciful about it. But just, you know, 30,000 odd people who were going absolutely nuts. If you look at clips on YouTube, people were on the pitch after we scored goals. I mean, it it just shows you the level of um, difference from where we were then in terms of our supporter base. Ironically, a lot of those people are still probably going to matches now in their 60s or 50s. They're not jumping on the pitch anymore. They're kind of staying firmly sat in their seat, probably moaning about something. That That's a difference. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah. So basically a lot of the spontaneity is kind of gone. And uh, also in England, you don't have so much. I mean, I did when we went up to Anfield for the Europa League, um, we took 30 um, members of the London fan club uh, up on the bus with the London Reds, London Liverpool fan club. Um, and uh, we played a friendly match against them, um, which uh, thankfully we won 5 0, um, the London Dortmund fan club. But, uh, um, and uh, I did see very much at Anfield um, that people do bring banners and scarves and flags and so on, and they do make quite an atmosphere of it. Just let me ask you briefly because, um, um, Peter, you mentioned the, f- the, the, uh, the big faces. Um, why, why in England do we not see so much of the capos, the guys with the megaphones kind of stimulating the, you know, trying to get, getting the songs and the chants going and so on? How does it actually work here um, in terms of, um, um, because my experience is mostly in Germany, I have to be honest, although I'm from the UK originally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think throughout every, every football club, I mean, you can go from non-league to every single division, there'll be certain people that go there that perhaps they've got the respect of the other fans. They don't have to be hooligans or anything like that, but they're somebody that can get the crowd going. They've, maybe they've got the loudest voice. Maybe they've got lots of friends around them. Maybe they're the funniest guy, you know, or girl. They can get the crowd going. And you would call that, you know, in, in the old days, there'd be faces, there'd be different sets of people that, and Chelsea have got, you know, they've got people that are in hooligan directs. They've got people that are just cheerleaders in a way. They are cheerleaders. They wouldn't use the microphones. They would use their own voice and they would be projected. They would be get up. So uh, one of the most famous ones in Chelsea, um, Mickey Greenway from, from, from back in the um, 60s and 70s and 80s. If he started, what they call a song called Zigzagger, if he started, everybody would follow. And it would just, that would lead to somebody else start a song, somebody else. So if it's a quiet game, someone of that stature would start a song and then other fans would join in and, and pitch in their own songs afterwards. And that, I'm, I imagine that's every club in England. But it wouldn't necessarily be um, somebody standing there that that's, their the job throughout the game was to, was to start the crowd. When I went to Dortmund, I mean, I, I didn't get to sit in the yellow wall. I was at the opposite end, and I was next to the, the away fans. Sorry and, about that, Peter. Yeah, I right. no, no, but no, but it was interesting. We, we to don't always the, get the tickets that we want from Borussia Dortmund, although they have been good about getting us tickets for the last. The fan club's been going for seven years. For the last five years or so, we've always got tickets for most games, um, and yeah. usually less than forty pounds um, average. Yeah, no, that's okay. But, no, but I had a great time. But we were at the the, the other end near the away fans. And there was two guys with with um, these um, loud speakers, and they didn't seem to watch the game. They seemed to just yep. watch watch their own fans and coordinating. You know, I think it was at Wolfsburg, and I think it was three 0 So they didn't do very well, but they didn't really watch. They didn't watch the game. They were just getting the, the crowd going. In England, that wouldn't happen. That you know, it's it's there. You start you, even if you're losing, you you, you want to put a good impression of your, your your fan support. So if if we're 
away at Liverpool, we're losing 4 0. You want the end of the game, not hearing you never walk alone. You want to hear Chelsea, Chelsea. You want to hear the fans going for it to the end. And people, that's what they would do. These these faces would just energise everybody else. But it wouldn't be in a European way. It wouldn't be we were holding up a, a speaker or anything, a microphone. It would be just for their, because they've got a presence, because they are a known person. And it doesn't mean that they're a hooligan. In a way, it could be that they're. In a way, a cheerleader. They're the, they're a champion. The people they're, they're a known face that people respect, and they're in a way, it's a hardcore fan, an ultra, but they wouldn't be called ultras. Does that make yeah. sense? It makes absolutely sense. I want to bring in Philip here because he's been out of it for out of the conversation a little bit. It was just really kind of listening, Philip. What are your impressions of of that kind of slightly more sterile, more kind of clinical atmosphere? Um, with the less of the spontaneity, less organisation and so on, and, and also the high ticket prices. I mean, does that appeal to you for football? Do you think it could work in Germany to lose so much of that culture, fan culture? Well, it's interesting you mentioned because what uh, Peter just said, uh, the, the guy not watching the game, holding his megaphone, uh, being... Um, Turn to his his own crowd. This is on the one hand a big responsibility. Not everyone can do that, and you're holding this position for years. And actually, those guys—it's mainly men—never miss a game, and it's their responsibility. On the other hand, you will always hear the same songs, and whether you're three nil up or, or three nil down. Um, to me, and I'm kind of an old odd fella when it comes to that, an old breed, um, I like the more spontaneous approach way better because whatever happens down there, um, you know, in, it infuses whatever comes from the terraces. This is a kind of two-way situation. Like if you, if, you know, if the first couple of minutes of the game went well, the crowds were always on fire, already on fire, and this got back on the pitch. So this was basically what uh, what happened in the old days. And even if you were three 0 down, if you played well and played your heart out, you would always get your support until the end. This is not it. But um, if if people had the feeling this is not going well, you know they they gave the game away after being two 0 down, they would let their their guys know. And I like that more. But on the other hand, I mentioned that no matter what approach, I think it's um, part of the ultra culture as well. No matter what, we're going to support them. And one game in 20, maybe you you, you get a, a good result out of uh, being 2-0 down. You know, you get a draw to, to all. And they would probably say, if we hadn't supported our guys till the end, this wouldn't be have been possible. I don't think whether, like the you know the um, Champions League uh, semi final against the the Spanish team helped me out here with Borussia Dortmund. Are you talking about Borussia Dortmund? The the one where they made the final at home. They had the, the game. Was it was it Real Madrid where they turned around the game? No, that was Malaga. That was the quarter. Thank you, thank you. That's the one I mentioned. Um, I think it, this would all would have been possible with the old way, the one I mentioned as well, because everyone would have gone uh, to the full, uh, fullest of the support. But in the new ultra way, ultra way, going on and on and on, even if even if you don't think it's going to work this this evening, they always gave it all. And at the end of the day, you had the result, and maybe the 
maybe the capo, the, the boss said, see, I told you, never give up, uh, give it give it your best, and at the end, we'll see where that leads us. That's right. Let me, let me jump in for a second quickly, because I'm also mindful of the time we want to talk about safe standing as well, which is a very big issue, and also fan fashion, Peter was... Um, was wanting to talk about um but um yeah i mean um in essence uh i kind of uh, really i can i can i can really see like the huge difference and i mean obviously in my case i i prefer the german way but um I, what i wanted to say was that um uh, roman roman burki the dortmund goalkeeper was talking uh, last week um in kicker magazine a football magazine about how um Dortmund wouldn't have lost um, against Augsburg if they'd been playing in Dortmund uh, in front of the yellow wall. Um, and um, in Dortmund, they talk about that zwölfte man, the twelfth man, um, and basically how the Zutribune can really uh, swing the match. I mean, I remember I went to watch, um, uh, was it two seasons ago, when Obama Yang was transferred from Dortmund to uh, Arsenal. I think, it was, was it two seasons ago? Was it three seasons ago? I can't remember. But um, longer. Yeah, probably three seasons ago. And I went to watch him in the match against Everton. And um, he scored, um, the. I think it was the opening goal. And it was the second goal, actually. And he then didn't know how to celebrate. So he just sort of sheepishly went round behind the goal. And... Um, and and then, then the players came and celebrated with him. And then at the end of the match... Um, because in Dortmund they they go and celebrate you know with with the yellow wall um and 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 at the end of the match um in Dortmund they go to the to the yellow wall to the Zutribune and they basically acknowledge the fans and they basically you know um uh, kind of you know ch chant and sing together and sort of you know raise the atmosphere and so on and, and the players are celebrated and so on at the end of the match and Obama Young just kind of didn't know what to do because all the Arsenal players started walking off the pitch and and Oba was expecting to to go to the clock end or whatever and celebrate with the Arsenal fans um and uh, and that just didn't happen and I just remember seeing that and just thinking that how different it is really um David um do you agree that um do you see that in Germany that the, the the fans really make a difference I mean um do do the fans make that much of a difference here do you do you see those trends that I'm talking about there and um, that that relationship seems to be so much stronger between the fans and, and the players, or is that a link that's missing a bit in England? And and is that I'm not sure. I think, it, I think it does exist. That? I think it does exist. Um, I would say it was certainly much stronger in the past. So there were defined home terraces at every club. We've already spoken about the fact that most English teams have either changed or remodeled their stadia to be these kind of ultra modern bowls, for want of a better term. So some have gone a step further and just taken their stadium outside the city they were in to this kind of outside retail park next to kind of several shops and it's just not a football arena. So that in itself um, disintermediates the local area from the football club because you'd expect, you know, whether it's Chelsea, Arsenal, whoever, their local support to kind of live relatively close by. Suddenly, if your stadium is 20 miles outside the town you're supposed to be representing, that's already a difference. So I think it's partly kind of where people are coming from to watch the match. Um, to Peter's point earlier, I think what we've relied on historically in English football is to 
try and intimidate the opposition more than anything. So it's less about supporting your club, but actually intimidating the opposition. And I think there's something in that, because if you look at the results since um, the pandemic broke out and, and games have been played behind closed doors, you look at the amount of away wins, that they're, they're much higher than in any other season. So there must be something to the fact that there aren't home fans to either support or intimidate either way. There's got to be something in that. So, so in summary, are are the fans still the twelfth man here in England? I think in more subtle ways, not perhaps as pronounced or as obviously as somewhere like Dortmund, where there's a very identifiable kind of home area, let's say, a main section. Um, but I think they're definitely a factor. Yeah. yeah, thank you for that, David. I really get, I really get that. And Peter, um, you wanted to talk about um, fan fashion, but also about the yellow wall. And I'm just going to give you guys notice. We've done a, an hour now, so um, <laughs> we should be wrapping this up in the next sort of five minutes or so. But um, yeah, yeah, bring in your 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 uh, your point about uh, safe standing because it's certainly been a campaign. We've seen Celtic introduce it. We've seen Shrewsbury Town introduce it in League uh, League One. Are they? Yeah, I think they're in League One, third tier. Or are they League Two now? I'm not sure. But it isn't really, it hasn't really, um, I think probably because of the impact of uh, Heisel and Hillsborough in the past, where basically, um, you know, fans died, crushed and so on. And um, it just, it just hasn't really taken off again. Can I just ask a quick question, Peter, there? Would you say, is it actually a fact that the, that the actual home ends have actually been completely removed in grounds and stadiums. So, so like Chelsea doesn't have a, 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 a home terrace anymore. No, um, is that no, right? So Chelsea, Chelsea still have the well, what we call now. It's the original. The, the original shed ends is is shared with the away fans. The Matthew Hodding Lower has become the the hardcore support area, and it is the home end. And for certain games, it can still be bouncing. Can still be. People stand the whole game and it can be really loud. Then we could have a game at 12.30 on a Sunday and it can be dead. It can be so quiet. It's embarrassing. And and this is every club. You mentioned Liverpool have a great atmosphere. They don't always have a great atmosphere every game. It's it's throughout the country. It's, it's being diluted. So safe standing is seen as something that could save football. Um, I understand Celtic have tried it, some, some, some non-league teams. Have, it's the idea that you can get a group of like-minded people close together and, and, and if they could do the singing and dancing, it's going to lift the rest of the, the rest of the ground. It's going to improve the, the atmosphere and, God forbid it, use the word product for the people watching on telly. They want to hear atmosphere. They want to hear um, fans really getting into it. And I think safe standing, I, the only time that I've been able to use it, I went to see 1860 play. Um, and it was a, a cold December day, and everybody was drinking like mulled wine and 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 singing, and it it was it was brilliant. And this is this is a you know at the time, I mean they were I think they were in the the first or the second they're below the Bundesliga. I know they've gone down a lot further now, but it was it was a great you know I, I really missed the terracing. And in England we still have that at non-league and some lower league teams, but safe standing. It's something that I was hoping was going to be reintroduced and it, it, it could actually, all of the stadium, it could actually lift the whole atmosphere. If one end is actually going for it and singing, then it can really help. But given COVID, I don't know if it's been set back a few years now because um, we'll, we'll have to see what happens in, in, in the coming years. So I think it was getting closer in England and, and I imagine you guys love it in Germany, safe standing compared to just everybody having to sit. 
but um, I, I hope it's going to come to England soon once COVID is over. Or fit, yeah, you know. Absolutely right. Yeah, COVID will impact a lot of the decision making. But um, Peter, I mean, uh, it's also just about basically um, about the fact that it has caused violence and problems in the past and so on. And um, um, but 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 also, I think, I mean, um, I've been at games um, where the uh, even at even at Fratton Park at Portsmouth, uh, my local team, where they spend the whole where the where the security spend the whole time shouting at people and telling them to sit down. David, is that? Yeah. I mean, have you seen that at Stamford Bridge? Right. I mean, That's it's, a it's very almost comical, complaint. isn't it? Yeah, so it's, it's it's been a long-standing, pardon the pun, complaint uh, of having the kind of new modern stadium, um, and I think this was going to be something I touched on earlier, but actually because I knew we had this as a topic, um, so we spoke about why atmospheres are perhaps either really or um, generally perceived as being poorer in the UK versus other countries. There's a number of factors we spoke about: the demographic of attendance um, and the lack of youth pricing. But I think one of the key ones as well is actually the ability to just stand wherever you want or or mix with your friends. It doesn't have to be standing necessarily, but obviously we're in a, an era of all-seater stadia. Um, for example, Peter and I are part of, I'd say, a bigger group of friends that are, you know, when we've gone to certain away games, there's maybe 30 or 40 of us. I wouldn't call us a, an organised group, but it's just groups of people who've got to know each other and actually just hang about together. Um, now... For home games, the nearest any of us are to each other is maybe a couple of rows, a couple of blocks, but we're all dispersed throughout the same sure. stand. If all 30 or 40 of us were always together, then we would naturally sing more. And it has happened at away games where we've bought tickets together. So therefore, you know, we're comfortable with who we're around. It generates a slightly better atmosphere. Right now, I can tell you for a fact, my seat at Stanford Bridge, uh, I go with my brother. Behind me is a pair of 60-plus-year-olds. Um, to my left is someone in their 50s. In front of me, it's a guy in his 70s. I mean, that that's a fairly representative demographic of Stanford Bridge, 50s, 60s, 70s, 40s, and then a few sprinkles of everyone else throughout. That, that I think, is what's mainly affected the atmospheres. If we had safe standing, I think it would contribute to the energy much more. Um, and you're right, you know, give people a choice because – there are people who go in these all seats to stadia wanting to stand on one of them, but there are people who rightly say, this is a seat. I want to sit down. Absolutely. Or I need to sit down. Can I, just, can I just add that? I mean, you did mention um, Hillsborough. I mean, Hillsborough, you, the, the poor policing and the, the, the fencing around the terracing was the problem. I don't think safe terracing, I don't think it's going to lead to a hooligan problem. That Everybody's on CCTV, everybody buys season tickets, you can lose your job, you can do it. I think it's going to generate atmosphere, not hooliganism. Okay, guys, so let's just, by way of wrapping it up, it's been an absolutely amazing show, really fascinating, the insights. We can really see the huge difference between the uh, German scene with the more organised fans, which... Uh, Philip said, and and I and I I can echo that to some degree that sometimes um, the older fans do feel um, that the constant chanting, the constant songs, and so on, going on the whole time in an organised way can be a bit intimidating. It can be kind of a bit off-putting for 
for those who are not involved with it. But it can also be a huge asset to the club and to the players and so on in terms of motivation and so on. And um, we talked about how um, the fan scene is more organised in Germany. Dortmund have uh, 900 fan clubs uh, around the world, about which more than half of those are in Germany itself. And um, um, and they're very much organised with their own banners and scarves and so on. They have their their presence is visible. But we then also talked about the English scene, which is kind of more decentralized, where people are doing their own thing, how basically in the past there were more kind of hooligan elements, but um, you know, stadiums have kind of lost their um they've lost their 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 kind of loyal areas where people would go. And also that young people have been kind of pushed out because of pricing and it's become kind of more you know, high class stadiums and so on where people have to sit down. And then there's the kind of sense of, you know, that spontaneity in the songs that um, were not so much coordinated in the past, but they're just, they're not really there. And so um, a lot of people, and I think Peter and I are, are, are examples of this, English people will love to go out to Germany um, and really uh, soak up that atmosphere and really enjoy um, the passion and enthusiasm and also just have a have a beer as well with with other people on the, on the stands and and, uh, and and I love in Germany the way you can celebrate you can just hug someone and you know really like whatever just you know go crazy when 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 you win and celebrate a common experience with other people so I mean I think the German way of football is very very appealing and I'm, I'm also glad to hear that um, Peter you feel that um, English football um, may be looking more at, um, at standing terraces and more songs and so on in the future so it's not all bad so just quickly before we wrap up and get the social media guys a quick vote amongst you standing uh, standing uh, good or bad standing terraces totally good fine 100% supportive it's necessary absolutely necessary thank you so much well it's been an amazing show so um yeah basically by way of wrapping up um where can people catch you guys on uh, on social media if they want to uh, talk more about this topic with you or perhaps david and peter if they want to connect with you and maybe watch a game here in england perhaps some german fans coming over yeah okay david if you go first yeah um I, i'm trying to remember my twitter handle i think it's dr <laughs> underscore stan I, I never actually give it out it's one of those things it loads on your app but pretty sure it's dr underscore stan yeah and i'm at uh, pqcfc pqcfc and philip where can people find you also on Twitter, it's P H B U E C H N E R P H Büchner. P H Büchner. Okay.